Let's continue our worship now by listening carefully to the reading of God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 41, verses 1 through 16. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dream, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together before we look at God's word. Our Father, earlier this morning we sang that you would come have your way among us. And as we have heard your word read, and now as we begin to think about it and ponder its message, Holy Spirit of God, we pray that you will come and have your way among us. We need you. We want you. We're asking you to speak to our hearts, our minds, that you'll change our way of thinking today, that you'll change our way of behaving today. Your word is a powerful, mighty weapon. It's a sword that uncovers the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so, Lord, we're asking you to do that for us this morning. Let us see Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I want to talk with you this morning about something rather minor, changing the world. Just that, just changing the world. When I think about changing the world, I I really get discouraged. And I've heard sermons that start off with something like, we're going to talk about changing the world. And I get very, uh, very discouraged about that. Because when I start thinking about all of the problems in this world today, all of them sort of remind me of that oil rig out in the Gulf. It seems that it's just, there's stuff we can't do anything about. You know, racism, 
terrorism, the spread of infectious disease, hunger, poverty, homelessness, atheism, religious persecution, on and on and on. We could think about all of the challenges in this world. And when I, when I start listing them, when I watch the news, for example, sometimes I think, you know, politicians can't do anything about those problems. It doesn't seem that war affects those problems. It doesn't seem throwing money at those problems really seems to help. What can I do about one of those, much less all of them? So I sort of throw my hands up and say, I give up. I can't do anything about these things. But then I read Genesis 41. And this is what I see. One life lived with humble ambition for the glory of God, can change the world. That's what I see in this chapter. One life lived with humble ambition for the glory of God can indeed change the world. We see that here in Genesis chapter 41, and we see it throughout the Bible as well. Have you ever heard of the butterfly effect? I think it's a a fascinating concept. It was a term made popular by a meteorologist and mathematician who died a couple of years ago. His name's Edward Lorenz. He was an early pioneer of chaos theory. The butterfly effect is basically the idea that tiny things like the flapping of a butterfly's wings can ripple out over time and produce enormous changes in the Earth's atmosphere. Edward Lorenz gave a talk back in 1972 The title of the talk was, Does the Flap of a Butterfly's Wings in Brazil Set Off a Tornado in Texas? And and what he meant by that was that something as tiny as a butterfly can change the course of history, can affect potentially billions of people simply by being a butterfly. Genesis 41 is an illustration a biblical illustration of the butterfly effect. Joseph, our main character here, flapped his little tiny butterfly wings and changed the world. And believe it or not, you can too. So let me show you what I mean. We've been studying the life of Joseph, this man in the Old Testament, for several weeks now. We left Joseph last week in prison. If you were here last Sunday, you know that we looked at Genesis chapter 40 and we found out that Joseph was there in prison for something like eight, nine, maybe ten years, and he was imprisoned for a crime that he didn't commit. Well, while in prison, Joseph interpreted the dreams of two men who joined him as his cellmates one day. They were the chief cupbearer of Egypt and the chief baker of Egypt. The cupbearer was released from prison, according as his dream had said, and the baker was executed that is, put to death. Uh, Joseph had asked the cupbearer when he got out of prison to put in a good word for him, you know, to speak to the king of Egypt on his behalf and say to the king, hey, Joseph is innocent. He's in prison for a crime he didn't commit, and, and you need to let him out. But we learned last week that Joseph's friend turned out to have forgotten him. He didn't speak in his behalf, and so Joseph had to deal with a major disappointment. He had to stay there in prison. And that brings us to chapter 41. 
According to verse 1 of our text, and I hope you will leave your Bible open at chapter 41 because we're going to look at much of this chapter even though it wasn't all read to you. According to verse 1, two more years have passed since we left Joseph back in chapter 40. And we learned that one night the king of Egypt had a dream. In, in, in actuality, he had two dreams. They were just the same dream back to back, two different forms. One of the dreams was about these seven fat cows that got eaten up by seven scrawny, skinny, ugly cows. And the second dream was about seven uh, healthy heads of grain that got swallowed up by seven thin heads of grain. So the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had these dreams. And the next morning he wakes up and he's very disturbed, very concerned about whatever these dreams might mean. He calls his wise men and his magicians and his sorcerers together. He describes his dream to them. They cannot figure it out. They don't know what it meant. But the chief cupbearer overhears the whole thing. And suddenly he remembers, oh, wait a second. I was in prison and I had a dream. And this guy, Joseph, interpreted my dream for me and it came true. And so in in, uh, verses 9 through 13, this cupbearer tells Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, about Joseph. He says, King, this guy Joseph knows dreams. You got to call him out of prison. So the king sends for Joseph, tells Joseph his dreams, and sure enough, Joseph proceeds to give the king the interpretation of the dreams. In the rest of Genesis 41, what we see is the butterfly effect. Joseph flaps his wings, if you will, and amazing things take place. For example, in verses 25 through 32, basically what happens there is that Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams as a word directly from God that a famine was going to hit Egypt. And if something weren't done now about that coming famine, thousands of people were going to die. Well... Now let's skip down to verses 33 through 36. Let me read those verses for you. It says in verse 33, Now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. In those verses, you have Joseph's recommendations to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about the coming famine. Now, think about this and just let this sink in for a moment. Joseph is just this 30-year-old, obscure Hebrew from an obscure country who's been in prison for the past dozen or so years. He isn't famous. He is not a doctor. He's not a lawyer. He's not a politician. He doesn't have a Ph.D. after his name or anything like that. The only job Joseph ever held down during his time as a free man was tending the flocks of his father Jacob. That's it. But in verses 37 through 40, we find out that Pharaoh likes what he hears from, uh, from Joseph. Not only does he implement Joseph's plan, but he appoints Joseph to be his prime minister, as it were, his vice president or his vice regent, the second in command over the entire nation of Egypt. Isn't that amazing? 
In verse 42, the king of Egypt takes off his signet ring and places it on the finger of Joseph. He puts an ornate robe of royalty on Joseph's shoulders, hangs a gold chain around Joseph's neck, and Joseph gets to ride around in a chariot all day while people who see him coming say, Make way for Joseph! This is an incredible... Now, don't you see why I I entitled this series From Prison to Palace? I mean, this is an incredible tale of elevation for a man who spent about a dozen years of his life in prison and now he's the number two guy in all of the mightiest nation on earth. Now, do you see why I said earlier, one life lived with humble ambition for the glory of God can change the world. This sentence right here. How can that describe you? When you look at it, do you think, oh, that's great. That's very nice and biblical sounding. And I know that we're supposed to think that about Joseph. But my challenge to you is this. Do you think it's possible that that sentence could actually apply to you? That if you were to live your life with holy, humble ambition for the glory of God like you never have before, that your idea, your passion, your gift, your ability, your position, your job, your family could actually end up changing the world? If it could happen with Joseph, why not you? Could there have been anybody more ordinary than Joseph? At this time in history, no. So why not you? Your life lived with humble ambition for God's glory. I know that it's unlikely that you'll ever live in a palace like Joseph did. I know that it's quite unlikely that people are going to say, make way for you or for me. But nevertheless, you can flap your wings. And change the world. You can live your life with humble ambition for God's glory. And so the question becomes, how? How can you do that? How can I do that? It can begin if we will adopt three convictions. Three convictions that I see taught or modeled for us by Joseph. Let me me dive in right away with conviction number one. If you want to be a world changer, if you want to live that life of humble ambition for God's glory, the first conviction you've got to have is this one, that God is not finished writing your story. God is not finished writing your story. Now, I know I've pointed this out before, but Joseph had a lot of reasons to be an intolerable jerk. Wouldn't you agree? He had a lot. Humanly speaking, Joseph could have been an intolerable jerk. I say that because, for one thing, his brothers had sold him into slavery. His boss, Potiphar, had this wife who tried to seduce him. He refused. She accused him of raping her. Potiphar throws Joseph in jail. He spends a long time there. This friend of his, the cupbearer, forgets all about him. Joseph could have been a jerk because of all those things. Heck, you know, for me, I get upset when I don't get the garbage out on time on Monday morning. I don't know how I would react if but one of these trials were to come my way. I'm afraid that I would become a bitter old man really fast. 
but not Joseph. Joseph doesn't appear in the text to have gotten bitter, but rather better. How? Why? How did he get better in prison? How did he get better going through these different things that he had to endure? Well, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Joseph knew that God is always at work. That was one of his bedrock foundational beliefs. That there's never a time when God just stops working and backs away and says, forget you. No, God is always, always at work. He is always writing your story. No matter how dark it seems to get, no matter how desolate your circumstances might happen to be, God is writing the story of your life. And if you'll trust Him, and if you'll wait on Him, you'll find out it's a good story. Yes, you might have a lot of heartache to have to endure. I'm looking at faces that I know are enduring heartache. There's going to be time when you, when there, there will be times when you have to face and a very difficult disappointment. I know that. There are going to be times when you're going to be thoroughly confused about what God is doing. Look, I know that too. I felt, I felt that way at times. I have felt, God, if you're authoring my story, it doesn't appear to be going anywhere right now. The plot is a mess. God, have you just stopped writing my story? I mean, it's very confusing for us at times. But I want you to know, the Bible teaches that it's a good story. If you are in Christ today, if you're trusting in Jesus today, God promises that he's writing a good story for you and he's never going to take his pen away and stop writing it. I was talking one time with somebody who was really concerned about his teenage son. The son of his was not living out his Christian faith very well. He was into some things that were causing a lot of heartache to this man and his wife, the boy's mom. But you know what this father said to me? He said, Mike, I'm concerned about my boy. I really am. But one thing I know for certain is that God is writing his story. It's not the story that I would have written, but it's the story that God is writing. And that gives me great peace. I know that Joseph must have had his dark days. He had to have times when he struggled with discouragement and doubt. But when the day came that Pharaoh called Joseph out of prison, what do we find in this passage? Joseph was ready. He was ready because he knew God had not finished writing his story. Another chapter was about to begin. And you see that in verse 14. In verse 14, it says that Joseph shaved and he changed his clothes and he came before Pharaoh. He was ready for chapter 2. See, Joseph never gave up on God because he knew God had never given up on him. I don't know where you are today. You may be very blue about something. You may be feeling very desolate and discouraged about something going on in your life. It might be your marriage. It might be the addiction that you've been trying to battle with day after day after day. You may feel that nobody on earth cares about you or knows what you're going through. Don't think for a moment that God is finished with you. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says very clearly that he who began a good work in you will, what? Carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. See, with Jesus there are no unfinished symphonies. Look, the proof of that is the cross. If Jesus died for you, He's not going to give up on you. 
So conviction number one of someone who seeks to live such a life that might change the world is this. God is not finished writing my story. I hope you'll take that with you today and live it out in the months and years ahead in your life. A second conviction that a world changer must have is that God can do impossible things through people like me. If you want to have a a life that's one of humble ambition for the glory of God so that you might seek to change the world, this is what you've got to have. You've got this conviction that God can do impossible things through people like you. Because when you're looking at the problems that face our country today, for example, it's Memorial Day weekend, it's naturally something that's on our minds. Or when we're thinking about the challenges that face the church in the 21st century, or just when you look at your own life, the relationships that you're struggling with, the cancer that you have, the debt that you're in, the addiction that you can't seem to win over. Just looking at those things, you get awfully tired and awfully discouraged if you forget that God is sovereign. And God can use people who are imperfect to accomplish His sovereign will and plan. He uses us clay Jars clay and broken vessels and imperfect people to accomplish his sovereign will. And this is one of those mysteries of the Bible, isn't it? Uh, Let's talk theology for a a few moments. You know that we teach here that God is absolutely sovereign. That God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And that what does come to pass somehow fits into a marvelous plan. We may not understand it, but God is sovereignly overseeing and supervising this plan. And he's the God of providence. If you come back next week, we're going to talk about the providence of God in Genesis 42 through 45. And you'll see what I'm talking about. But the same Bible that teaches that God is sovereign also teaches human responsibility. It's like the two are somehow, in the mind of God, totally compatible. And we must hold both of them up equally high. God, although He has a sovereign plan, uses your prayers, your ideas, your decisions, your planning, your words, your deeds, your actions to accomplish His sovereign will. Let's apply that to Genesis 41. What do we learn in this chapter? We learn that Pharaoh has this dream. And the dream foretells a coming famine that's going to last seven years. So what does Joseph do? What does Joseph do? Does he say, oh, well, que sera, sera? No. Does Joseph say, well, God has a plan. God's foreordained everything. I'm just going to sit back and see how it works out. No. Does he even go back to his prison and commit himself to nothing but prayer that the famine would end or not ever come their way. He doesn't even do that. And we all know that prayer is a very good thing to do. No, what we learn in Genesis 41 is that that, uh, Joseph takes action. He acts. He uses his brain. He uses his will. And he gets involved in the problem. Look with me at verses 46 through 49. It says that in verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. 
Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. See, what a, what a clever man this is. Joseph was not about to be a passive observer of the famine. He wanted to do something about it. He wanted to use his common sense and his administrative abilities and his leadership gifts to help Egypt prepare for the worst. And his plan worked. If you read on down to verse 55, you see this. It says, when all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. See, Joseph's plan and his his ingenuity were so well respected by Pharaoh that Pharaoh just said, go see Joseph. He'll tell you what to do. See, friends, God is telling us something very, very important here. And the message from God in this chapter is that you have a reason for living that is bigger than you. You have a re- God has put you here for a purpose bigger than your little cul-de-sac. You have something, a God-given calling, a God-given ability, an anointing from God, a plan from God that is bigger than just your little bank account and your job and your home. Sometimes I get so tired of those shows on the HGTV network because these people are its so sad. They're putting all their hopes and all their dreams in their house. And it's all going to perish one day. You have a, if you're a Christian this morning, your reason for living is bigger than you. And God is saying through Joseph, let's find that out. Let's go on an adventure and find out what your purpose is. And live it out with gusto. You remember what God said to Abraham, right, in Genesis 12? He said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. But he didn't stop there. He went on to say, Abraham, I will bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That was God's plan then and it's still his plan for you and me now. That he wants to bless us, that we will be a blessing to others. Ultimately, to all the nations on earth, all the people groups on earth, you and I can have an impact on them. And we get so focused on our little bitty world, our little bitty kingdom, that we forget that we are to emulate Joseph and flap our wings for the glory of God and the good of the nations of the world. I want to show you a video that helps illustrate this. I'm not going to tell you what it is ahead of time. I'd like you to look at it and then I'll I'll tell you something that might surprise you right afterwards. Imagine a way for people all over the world to tell the story of what was happening to them or around them during a disaster or emergency situation. It would need to be easy to use, something that almost anybody can do, and it would need to be deployable worldwide. And that's why we've created Ushahidi. Ushahidi is the Swahili word meaning testimony or witness. Born from the post-election violence in Kenya in 2008, Ushahidi kept Kenyans current on vital information and provided invaluable assistance to those providing relief. It was deployed in the Democratic Republic of Congo to monitor unrest 
Al Jazeera used it to track violence in Gaza. It was used to help monitor the 2009 Indian elections and to help gather reports globally about the recent swine flu outbreak. Anybody can contribute information, whether it's a simple text message from an SMS-capable phone, a photo or video from a smartphone, or a report submitted online. Ushahidi can gather information from any device with a digital data connection. After a report is submitted, it's posted in near real time to an interactive map that can be viewed on a computer or smartphone. But the most powerful feature Ushahidi offers is the ability to take the core application and deploy it yourself to suit your community's needs. Since Ushahidi is open source, anyone can improve the service in any way they see fit. Our growing community of developers are constantly at work improving Ushahidi to bring it to as many people as possible, including working to bring native applications to today's most popular mobile devices. With Ushahidi, it's easier than ever to get critical and timely information to those that need it most on a platform that almost anybody can use. That's Ushahidi. Now... I'm not real up on a lot of technical stuff, but this is what I understand about that. That this is a free, open source web resource that people in the world can use to alert the rest of the world about things like earthquakes, hurricanes, other natural disasters, disease outbreaks, violence outbreaks, and that's exactly what it's been used for. It was developed, created, invented, thought through by a member of our church, Eric Herzman. Eric now lives over in Africa. He is the author of that idea. And I, I don't know how it started, but I guess one day Eric thought there's got to be a way that when something bad happens in the world, those who know about it can go on the li- online and tell the rest of the world so that resources can be appropriated. And so a member of our church is now having an earth-changing impact through his laptop computer. Now, I know that is a far-out example, but isn't it possible that you can have an idea, a passion, a gift, or an ability that God could blow on and allow your little wings to flap in such a way as to have an impact in some way in another part Of God's kingdom. That is my total conviction that any one of God's people filled with God's Spirit can have an impact on others for the kingdom of God. So I'm embarrassing Eric long distance. I don't know if he'll find out about this, but I used his example to show what's possible for us, for you, for me. Jim Elliott was a missionary who died giving his life for the cause of Christ. And he said this, he said, wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. I love that thought. Wherever you are, be all there. If you're a school teacher, be all there for Jesus. If you're a nurse, be all there for Jesus. Live to the hilt. If you're a mom or a dad, if you're an engineer, a missionary, if you're in sales, Be all there for Jesus. Don't do anything halfway. Explore new paths. Investigate your dreams. When you sense God putting a holy desire upon your heart, follow it wherever it leads. Take a risk. 
Go on a mission trip. Invite your neighbors to church. Ask somebody to do a Bible study with you somewhere. Meet a non-Christian for coffee one afternoon. Figure out how you can get out of debt and give more money to the church. The sky's the limit on what God can do through you. Well, let me wrap up real quick with this third conviction. We've seen the two things, two of the three that a world changer needs to believe. God's not finished writing your story. God can do impossible things through people like you. The third and final conviction, though, is that you cannot do life on your own. You can't possibly do life on your own. You've got to live in total dependence upon God and His grace. Look with me at verse 16. And Joseph shares this with us. Pharaoh had come to Joseph and said, Joseph, I had this dream. Nobody can interpret it, but I've heard that you can do anything, Joseph. You can interpret dreams. But look with me at what Joseph says. Verse 16, I cannot do it. You know, when you think about what we've talked about this morning, think about world changing, thinking about using your gifts, your abilities, contributing your ideas, following your dreams and so on, you're probably thinking like Joseph, I cannot do it. And you know what I say? Good. That's great. You can't do it. Not on your own. Living life on your own does not work. And I suspect I'm speaking this morning to some people who are trying to live their lives on their own, disconnected from God. You know, that was the first sin. Adam and Eve committed this first sin, and that was to become like God. That's what the devil said to Eve. Eat this forbidden fruit, Eve. It'll make you like God. And that appealed to her because there's something inside us that wants to be independent from God to not depend on Him for help, to not pray, to not trust in Him, but to live life on our own by our own bootstraps. Joseph says you can't do it. I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. It's because we have this incredible longing to be independent from God that Jesus came to this earth. He came to live the life we didn't live and die the death we deserve to die to set us free like Joseph, from our prison of sin to set us free that we might be united to the Father that we've always wanted and desperately needed. You know, I mentioned earlier that oil rig in the Gulf. Your sin problem is just like that. You can't solve it. It's too hard. Jesus left heaven to come to earth to take care of it for you. So trust in Him. Don't live life on your own. Flap your wings in dependence upon Jesus and sit back and watch how God's going to write your story and use you to change the world. Let's pray. Father, we want to first of all confess to you that we do want to do things on our own. We do want to break free of you and be our own savior. But Lord, thank you, Jesus, that you came to die for people like that to free us from our prison of sin, to forgive us and give us your Holy Spirit. Lord, we praise you that you are writing a story in our lives, each of us. We pray that you will fill us with your Spirit and help us live with holy abandon and humble ambition for your glory. I pray for each of the people here at UPC, Lord, that we will depend on your grace, that we will flap our wings with joy, that we will not even fear failure but we will pick ourselves up and keep flapping so that you might use us for your glory. 
Father, we thank you so much for the challenges that face us because they show us that we are weak, but we believe you are strong. You can do the impossible. Use us, we pray, to accomplish your perfect plan. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.